Welcome everyone to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Flink in two parts. This is part one, and we discuss his new book out September 1st, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It's a comprehensive book about Pete Sampras, and we have a comprehensive conversation about uh, the best American tennis player who ever lived. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Hope you do as well. Without further ado, Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer and a great friend of the program, Steve Flink. His new book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, is out on September 1st officially. You can pre-order it on Amazon right now. And uh, it was my great honor, Steve, to receive a, a copy of the book before the release date so I could read it cover to cover. Uh, and it was a tremendous experience and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so thank you again. And uh, now we get to talk about it. Yeah, I knew, I knew, Gil, that when I sent it to you that that would be the case. And some people you don't always know, but I knew for you it would be cover to cover because that's the way you approach things. Absolutely. Um, you wrote a tennis.com piece about why you decided to write this book. And a lot of it was uh, the, the simple task of chronicling a, a great champion that you personally have a lot of admiration for and someone who you've covered uh, throughout his entire career, but it also seems that there's an aspect uh, where you feel that the way that Pete has been remembered since he stopped uh, after 2002, or or perhaps uh, in some ways that he hasn't been remembered, that's also kind of bothered you. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I think that there was probably a little of that, but less when he was playing and people would talk about Rod Laver, for example. The difference being Rod maybe was a bit more visible in those years doing, making corporate outings and playing senior tennis and doing different things that kept him alive in the public imagination in a different way. But I think your characterization is, is definitely fair. He got someone somewhat uh, swept up in the era that preceded him, right? With Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal, then all four, or excuse me, all three of them numerically pass him and then the fact that he is not as much in the public eye as as like someone you mentioned rod laver that kind of all contributed to i think him kind of being um forgotten not you know not to a you know the fullest extent but to some extent yes it did it did and and listen he he chooses to lead the life he leads i admire that about him he doesn't need the, the constant adulation or enduring adulation uh, or affection. Uh, I, I think he appreciated it with all of his fans and, and was very grateful for his time in the game. Now he leads a nice family life in California. And I think he, he accepts that. I don't think he's looking for this kind of attention, but I wanted to bring it back to him in a way. I felt like the timing was good, Gil, because as you just alluded to, you 2002 was his last match. He beats Agassi in the finals of the U.S. Open never plays again on the, on the ATP tour, did come back and play seniors later in a little team tennis. But I, I think uh, during that span, particularly since those three superstars emerged in such a, in such a uh, staggering way is the way I would put it. It, 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 it did change things. I mean, you probably saw Lendl said in the book that he was, Pete was cheated by history in a way, because it could have been that guys like that didn't come along for, 50 years and then he would have everybody would have been saying he's the man i thought that was a perceptive comment from yvonne lendl yeah and that one did uh stick in my head as well 
are there some common like misconceptions about Pete's game? He's, he's known for having arguably the greatest serve in the history of the men's game. I mean, it's a title that's well-deserved from spot serving to the power to the disguise. It was all great. But do you feel like there are also some, what are the most underrated aspects of Pete's game that you tried to kind of bring out? Because this was a book about detail and, and those subtleties. It was. I mean, I tried to bring out the fact that, as, as a number of people said, in, including uh, Jim Courier uh, to Tom Gullickson in a story I related uh, surrounding Wimbledon 93, where Courier was talking about how he, how do you beat a guy that has two first serves? So I, I always thought that was one of the great attributes of Pete is that it, there was so little to choose between his first and second serves. And then once he started coming in behind it, serving and volleying constantly behind the second serve as well as the first which really happened predominantly from 97 on. You know, before then, he would do it on the grass at Wimbledon, but not necessarily on the hard courts. He's pick and choose. But once he started doing it on virtually all the surfaces, then, then he became, the second serve to me got even better. It got even bigger and more daunting. And he wasn't afraid to serve double faults in the, in, in the quest for going for very big second serves. So I would say this package of his first and second serve which we've never seen anything quite like that combo uh, it st stood out to me. And the other underrated thing that maybe I could have talked about more in the book is the speed. He was, he was, he was a great athlete. I thought it sort of came through with all the talk about athleticism, but his speed was, was absolutely remarkable, phenomenal speed and deceptive, very deceptive. And the last thing would just be the elegance of his game. Everybody talks about Roger Federer's elegance. There's no question about that, but, Pete was a, it was a, he was a different version, a slightly different kind of, it was a different kind of player, but he, he did it very stylistically as well. So I was trying to bring out all of those aspects of Sampras. The book is very much chronological. So it starts with the childhood and it really moves through his career. When, when Pete was young, even when he was a junior, what really impressed me about um, what I took away was his mindset at that time. A lot of juniors are ultra focused on their rankings and their results. And if you read Andre Agassi's biography open, of course, Agassi talks about how he couldn't stand losing and it was his ultimate fear. And Pete was almost like the exact opposite of that. Absolutely right. And, and part of that was instilled in him by his, his coach, Pete Fisher. They kept, he kept stressing, it's the big picture, it's the big picture. You're gonna be a great champion so that he didn't get obsessed with junior results. Part of it was, as you read, I, I'm sure, you know, the transition from the two-handed back end to the one when he was 14. And that automatically was probably going to impair some of his results. If he'd stuck with the two-hander, likelihood that he would have ranked quite high in the 16s and 18s higher than he did. But no, he never got carried away with that. Nor did he, Gil, get too obsessed with that, even in the early stages, the first couple of pro years. I had that story in there from Tracy Austin's brother, John, who coached him. And when Pete was 17 and how, you know, he played, he was playing this tournament before the open and he played a great match one day and the next day he went out and didn't seem like the same player at all. Didn't seem to have the same competitive spirit. And John Austin really chided him. He said he really went after him for about 45 minutes about that. And Pete's response along, was along the lines of, look, I'm Greek. I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. Now, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that he would say, but I think that was the basic message was, give me time. I'll get there. I'm not worried. I will, I will grow into this. And quite clearly, he did. 
it seemed like a, a very healthy way to develop and an incredible mindset, big picture. Juniors generally don't have that foresight. And uh, I found that very impressive, but it did have to change. And it seemed like the mindset changed when he lost that U.S. Open final to Edberg. And that loss was so crushing that it kind of flipped his, his mental game and took it to the next level. You couldn't be more right. Now, of course, two years earlier, he'd won his first major, youngest U.S. Open champion ever at 19 years, 28 days, and had that string of phenomenal wins over Yvonne Lendl, John McEnroe, Andre Agassi. But it was sort of hard living up to that the next couple of years. There were injuries. There were different factors that held him back. And in 92 is what you're referring to. 91, he, he came back to the Open and lost to Curry in the quarters, and he just wasn't quite ready to defend. He wasn't that comfortable with it yet. 92, I think he was very comfortable with it and felt that he should have won that match that you're talking about in the finals against Stefan Edberg. He didn't feel Edberg was playing that well that day. Pete was hard on himself because he'd had a tough night. He'd been on IV after his semifinal with Courier and been feeling that well. But he doesn't even talk about that anymore or nor did he much after the match. It was all about feeling like he kind of surrendered in a way that he didn't he didn't tank by any means it was a four setter he won the first set and eventually lost in four after serving for the third set but he was disappointed in his lack of competitive medal that day he felt he should have fought harder and it he said how that lingered in his mind for a long long time and it really irritated him aggravated him to and it, so i think gil that it actually was a very beneficial thing because the experience was so uh, enlightening to him and understanding himself that from that point on, from 93 on, he was a different player. And I think the Edberg loss led to a lot of triumphs. Yeah, he turned into this unbelievable fighter, someone who made it look easy, but was also gritty. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes it, it took some time for observers to see that, but efforts like when he, when he threw up on the court in the U.S. Open quarterfinals, um, and I'm the year escapes me, the opponent escapes me. Um, but there are stories like that where he he shows unbelievable toughness and resolve. And perhaps before that loss to Edberg in '92, he just wasn't that player. He had to become that player. Absolutely. Now you're, of course, just just for the benefit of the listeners, you're alluding to yeah. the '96 Open quarters against the Spaniard, Alex Carreccia, who got him into a long, debilitating struggle and, and sort of played the match more on his terms than Pete's. And eventually, Pete threw up on the court in the fifth set tiebreak, but escaped from match point down, won that match and won the tournament. But yes, it was a process, no doubt about it. And the Edberg uh, loss was sort of a stepping stone toward the greatness that he would find later. There's no doubt about that. And I, I often wonder what if that had not happened that day? Would it be beaten Edberg? How would things have unfolded from there? We'll never know. But there's, we, we do know that that loss, uh, the fact that it stayed inside his head for so long, that there's no doubt it, it, it was a positive thing in the years to come. Yeah, that, that is interesting to think about. And as Pete goes through the 90s and does so much winning and eventually goes 14 and four in major finals. It's his, his mental resolve that, that really shines through. And in Belgrade, Serbia, Novak Djokovic is watching and idolizing um, Pete Sampras. And you spoke to Novak for this book. I almost think on the surface, people might think, hmm, that's interesting that Pete idolized Novak, or excuse me, Novak idolized Pete because 
Novak's game is probably closer to Andre. Do you think that it was it was really the way Sampras went about things and was so strong mentally? Is that what Novak was really attracted to? Is that why he latched on to Pete? Yes, absolutely right. And that, that's essentially what Novak said to me. He knew their games were different. What he liked was the way Sampras carried himself. He's six years old, sitting in Serbia, watching Pete play the Wimbledon final against Jim Courier in 93. And he, he became a really ardent admirer. And, and Pete was his man. And he even tells a story, which I'm sure you saw, that his father would go to him a bit and start reading, rooting for Courier and Agassi just to sort of test him. And Novak would stand by Pete every time. But I, he had some fascinating things to say. And of course, he also felt that he, he learned a lot from the Sampras psyche. And he compared it to his win over Federer, saving the two match points in the 2019 Wimbledon final. And he felt like he sees some similarities between himself and Pete, even though he knows there's some, some significant differences as well, which he explained in the book, how he complicates things. And Pete always kept things simple. And that's a message that Sampras tried to get through to Djokovic. But I, I thought that was an interesting uh, chapter in the book. I, I imagining Novak sitting there as a six-year-old watching this final and Novak feeling somewhere deep within himself that one day he would be holding that Wimbledon trophy as well. And as you alluded to, Novak has made good on, on what, he, what he strived to, to achieve. And He's won so many great tournaments in, on the biggest stages under pressure, just like Pete did. What do you think it is that separated Pete mentally when it was five all in the fifth set and he was going for the break uh, in the Wimbledon final? Andre Agassi always had these doubts. He was always questioning himself. And so that, that, that often played on his mind and got he'd get in his way. And Jim Courier, I think in some ways, maybe was somewhat the same. He made a slightly tougher stock than Andre. But Pete uh, was the one that always felt he was better than everybody else, not in an arrogant way, but he just had this inner strength and inner belief from a very young age. And certainly from that 93 Wimbledon final on, where he just felt like he belonged and he was the best and he was going to stay there. So I think, yeah, it was a mindset. It was, it, and, and, it, and, that is definitely a theme of the book when you asked me earlier, you talked about his game, but the Sampras temperament, his state of mind, the way he conducted himself was something I wanted to keep stressing over and over again when I got back to the key matches because it really made a difference. I mean, it wasn't always a, a, a walk in the park. There were a lot of tough, hard fought, only one five set Grand Slam final against Ivan Isovich in 98 that he won, but still a lot of hard fought skirmishes where he had to tough these matches out and it was always a, he always had that sense of cool he just always the, the inner belief and the, and the, that sort of uh, there was a fire burning from within but he he would never explode or, and never stop losing sight of what he was out there trying to do you talked to so many of the people who played him and a lot of them expressed exactly that like oh well it wasn't that hard to stay with Pete in the beginning of the set, but by the end of the set, all of a sudden he was celebrating. Um, but I, I, I do have to ask, did, uh, did Andre decline to interview for the book because of all the chief, you know, all the great rivals that you spoke to, Andre wasn't among them? No, he wasn't. He, he declined politely, but he declined. I went through his business manager and I was very surprised by that. 
because I thought out of respect for Pete Sampras, his, his great rival, even though they're not close friends, they're still, they were always very respectful rivals and far from mortal enemies. And so I just thought he would do it out of respect. He did not. The other one, which was a slightly different case, because this one was, he made a point of saying he, they were politely declining, respectfully declining, was Boris Becker, who wanted to be paid. Boris Becker wow. uh, is through his manager at, 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 said, is there any money on the table? And I had to tell his manager, that's not the way do, we do journalism in this country. I would hope Boris would do this, but we're, I'm, I, I'm not going to pay him money to do an interview. So yes, neither one of those guys, but uh, I felt it was more than uh, balanced. The scales were more than balanced by the great material that Jim Courier gave me, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, three great American rivals, Ivan Isovich, Rafter, Ed Berg, Mats Wielander, so many others, and McEnroe and Lendl, not to mention the women were quite good too in Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova, Monica Seles, Chrissy Everbright. They all, they all certainly weighed in as well. But I thought, I don't know how you felt reading it, Gil, but I felt that they, they, they added layers to the Sampras story, these rivals, the way they explain his, his thinking and how they work. And, and so many of them were talking about their, their own deficiencies and, and acknowledging their own deficiencies, realizing that in Sampras they weren't getting any gifts, realizing that it, maybe it wasn't an accident looking back because Pete was the one that was the, the ultimate thorough professional. And not that they weren't professional, but they, they would sometimes uh, put these obstacles in front of themselves that they could not overcome. They were not built for the big occasions the way he was. Yeah, you got you got incredible honesty out of uh, you know Pat Rafter and and a lot of a lot of the others. Um, let's. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, and it's it's too good to to pass up on and ignore, which is Sampras going from the two-handed backhand that he grew up with to the one-hander. And this was one of those times. You talked to Michael Chang and you talked to others, and some of them said, "Oh, Pete should have stuck with the two-hander," and it was kind of a great debate that you allowed to, to play out in that chapter. Um, let's try to first cover our bases and say, you know, Pete decided to make the switch and, and his coaches were on board with the switch. And, you know, you can, you can tweak this, but my interpretation was he liked the transition game to the net, the option to chip in charge, uh, the extra fluidity that it brought and he felt that if he wanted an attacking game where he could get to the net more often, the one-hander was the best option. Absolutely, he certainly did. And he felt that as a, as a great athlete, he knew he was, a, he, was, he was a hard-working, dedicated craftsman. He also knew that he was gifted in the sense of just being a natural, superb athlete. And he felt to take full advantage of the athleticism, he couldn't have done it the same way with a two-hander. I come down on his side of the coin on that. Interestingly enough, you're right. Chang felt like maybe he could have still done a lot of the great things that he did. And, and Lansdorf, Robert Lansdorf, one of his boyhood coaches, felt that Pete would have won the French if he had stayed with the two-hander and still would have won all these Wimbledons. I think Pete feels like he would probably have given up some Wimbledons to, to do all that. The trade-off would not have been worth it. And, and I think he's right. I think in the final analysis, he's right. But I did want the debate to play out a little bit because Lansdorf, as, his, as one of his coaches and Chang as one of his junior rivals carrying on into the pros, they were around. They saw it firsthand. They knew. And, and Chang felt it was a great two-hander. Uh, so it, it's a, it, was, it was an interesting uh, way to kind of get started because that was in the early stages of the book to trace back to that period 
uh, of Sampras's life in the juniors. Do you think perhaps in today's game with the slower court speed, do you think he would have been more likely to stick with the two-hander? It's possible. Well, you know, it's not, we're never going to know. Like he even, he even mused himself about had he, had he stayed with the two-hander, who knows? And maybe he would have played more like Djokovic. Uh, you know, I, I can't quite see him playing that way, but you're right. There's the courts being slower these days. We, we don't know. And, and that might've altered the thinking of someone like a Pete Fisher, or, who was the, who's overseeing his career there would have maybe been a different way of thinking from those around him to how he should shape his game. But at that time, let's face it, at that time, as he's growing up, you've got, you know, yes, the U.S. Open was changing surfaces and going first to clay courts and then to hard, but you had Wimbledon, Australian, still on grass at that point and a lot of fast court tennis. And deep into his career, the courts were still very fast. So I think for him, he felt it was the only way to go. And I don't think he has any second thoughts about it whatsoever, although he was very willing to talk about and fascinated by what they had to say. Yeah, it's certainly difficult to argue with the results when you win 14 major titles, but it is interesting uh, to, to think about. And, it, you know, it's, again, it speaks to his discipline that he had a great two-hander and he still thought he could get better as a junior and sacrifice the junior results. So to me, it's impressive. Uh, but and he respected, he's respected his coach, too. In a way, he was saying, I kind of did what I was told. Uh, so I right. think he felt like, well, they know a little bit more about this, and maybe it's not that comfortable. But, you know, fortunately for him, it really didn't, it didn't hold him back. He had one good year in the 18 and unders the last year. And, and, but all along, the thought was, okay, let, let, let's, let's get ready to peak when I'm in my early 20s. I think all along, they sort of, that was the way it was done back then, and you had to figure and he figured in the back of his mind that's how it would unfold, and he was right. You did ultimately get into kind of um, imagining and playing out what Sampras's game, uh, how it would play in the modern game, and against Djokovic, uh, Federer, and Nadal. And a lot of people had different kind of opinions on which player would give him the most trouble stylistically. Where do you fall? On, on that? I fall sort of near where he did, where he seemed to be falling himself, that Djokovic might have been the toughest under certain conditions, certainly, uh, you know, uh, because of the return. You know, he had to deal with Agassi's return, but as he said, oh, Novak is a better athlete than Andre, and he has more reach on his return. So he felt, I think he knows it probably harder to get the ball by Novak, and so that would have meant maybe not as many free points. But I just feel like he would have done. I listened to the point. I listened to all those people, the, the rafters, the Ivanisevichs, the Edbergs, everybody weighing in. John McEnroe, you saw the chapter. My view is that he would have done quite well against all three, as long as it was on hard courts, grass, or uh, indoors. And pe when people argue about slower courts today, yes, I think he would have made today's grass skill look a good deal faster than it is because I don't think he would have compromised that much. I think what would have happened at Wimbledon is he would have served and volleyed a little less, just a little less. He might've come in behind 60 to 70% of his second serves instead of all of them. Maybe occasionally compromised on his first serve, but basically I think he would have played that same way. And these guys are not accustomed to dealing with that. You know, you have someone like a Karlovich, but he's not of the same caliber. So I feel like he would have been very burdensome for all three 
obviously not for Rafa on clay, but who is? Rafa is far and away the most dominant on any one surface that we've seen in modern history of the game. But I think anything else, grass, hard, indoors, that Pete would have fared quite well against all three. And he, he did make it clear how comfortable he was playing Federer in the exhibitions. They only met the one time on the center court of Wimbledon in 01 when Roger won in five. But then he played these three exhibitions in the fall of 07 and once in early 08 in Madison Square Garden. And he only won one of those matches, but he had good opportunities in two of the others, including the garden where he served for the match. So I think he, he was, I love the way he analyzed it because he gave them their due, talked about what would have been so tough about getting the ball by Novak and how Roger might've been the toughest in other ways. And obviously Rafa was great, but then, then he flips the coin and tells you why he would have had confidence in his own ability to compete and stay with them. I had fun writing that chapter. And it was fun to read. I, I also thought Novak, I was thinking, Novak gives most big servers fits because they're not used to the ball coming back like it, like it does when they play Novak. So I was on the Novak side. Gil, Gil, let me just interrupt you for one second to get back to your thought. But in addition to that, he, he's a different kind of returner from Andre. The ball, Andre is sort of was, was guessing. And and if he got onto it, he might blast a winner by you, but he was more aceable. You could ace him more easily didn't have the same reach, nor did he necessarily get as many returns back into play. So you touched on something important is a lot of times these returns wouldn't necessarily have been great, but they would have forced Pete to play. He might have had to dig out a semi-awkward first volley coming in behind the serve. So he would have presented some different types of problems, but boy, those matches would have been phenomenal. They just would have been astounding. Yeah, two of the great weapons of the game head-to-head right there. Um, and Novak, you saw Novak was very good about it. Novak actually said that he thought that Pete would have preferred playing him and Roger to playing Rafa, that the spin, Rafa's heavy topspin would have been a burden. I only agree to a point because I think if Pete's playing Rafa on, in quicker conditions, Rafa's not able to employ the topspin in the same way. And we've seen through the years, some of the players who started knocking off and Jill, Jill Muller and these types could beat Rafa on a given day on the grass. And, and, and I, so I, I don't entirely agree with him, but I thought it was fasc, fascinating analysis from Djokovic and fair-minded to basically say, I think he might have rather played me or Roger than, than Rafa with the spin. Well, would Pete have taken advantage of Nadal's return position because he's not comfortable up tight on the baseline? He, right. he wants time. He wants to move back. And that would have given Pete the angles and time to close the net further. Oh, with true. The, right? think, of, think of the number of times you've seen Roger bother Rafa with a slicer wide in the deuce court. Now, Pete would have been doing that. And Roger would serve in volley some on that, not always. Pete would have always been serving a volley on that. He would have been pulling really wide to his two-hander, opening up the court. Yeah, I think Rafa would have had to at times adjust and get back up on that baseline and take his chances, but it would have been very hard. And then I think Sampras would have then hit some body serves, and he still would have located it so well that he would have served a lot of aces that way too. Rafa moving up would have meant that he would have gotten ace more. And then, and then the last point uh, on this topic is, I guess the question would be, Nadal's heavy topspin and how it dips down low. Pete never really had to face that. That was interesting when he talked about playing the Babolat racket for the first time and how much extra spin uh, that created. So that's kind of new in the game. And that, that would have been, I guess, the argument, the counter argument for, for Rafa. 
Yes, absolutely. True. But I think that Pete would have made that adjustment. And I think, you know, that Rafa would have had to constantly be coming up with these dipping returns and passing shots, and it wouldn't have been comfortable for him on the quicker courts. Obviously, at Roland Garros, you know, he would have been entirely comfortable. We know that. But I, I even feel that in the, with the modern grass, it still would have been something of a nightmare for Rafa. The, the best matches that they would have had, Sampras, Rafa, would have been, I think, at the U.S. Uh, U.S. or Australian Opens on hard. There would have been more neutrality there. But it, 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 I couldn't resist going into those imaginary matchups because we talk so much about these three. And I wanted to see what those other players and coaches, those types, would say. And interestingly enough, you probably saw Ivan Isovich, who had not quite started coaching Novak when he said this, immediately said he thought that Novak and Rafa would not have enjoyed playing Pete. They, you know, he did not think it would have been a comfortable matchup for them the way Pete played, bearing it all the time, all the aggression and the serving and volleying. So that was, I found that also quite interesting. How did, how do you view uh, the elusive French Open title when it comes to Pete's legacy? He's in great company with some of the other great fast court players of his era. It just seemed like for a lot of them, it was really difficult to win Roland Garros. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.